Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Thanks for being here. (laughs) And thank you, Ben, for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Sarah. Yeah. Uh, It is, of course, we are continuing the practice of social distancing here in the post-coronavirus, actually mid-coronavirus world, Um, and so we're at home all the time, and that includes Sarah. She started her new job, Yay! worked two and a half days in the office, Yeah. and then they sent you home to work from home. Which I was thankful for. It took longer than expected to get me set up on the systems, Um, and as much as I was looking forward to going into work each day, it was kind of a ghost town. The entire building was empty because everyone was working from home. Yeah. I mean, it's great that you have a job that you can do from home and still be, like, paid the regular amount and have all the usual benefits of working there. Absolutely. And they aren't, like, shafting their employees on anything. Yeah. I'm very, very lucky. It is, like, weird to be learning a new job and meeting new coworkers without, like, going to the job and meeting the coworkers. Yeah, there's been a lot of, like, nice-to-e-meet-you emails. Right. (laughs) But, like, I don't know. It's funny because everybody else is, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with being home all the time. And... We're pretty good at that by now. Yeah. (laughs) With me being unemployed for five months. Yeah. And you working from home. Yeah. we, We have a good system. I Like I said, I was looking forward to not having to do that system anymore. Yeah. But I... I'm fine going back to it. Yeah, and now we're providing all our friends with helpful advice on how to how to do it. I have moved all of my D&D games online, uh, and so I don't leave the house anymore <laughs> for anything. We try to go for walks. Yeah, and I mean, we're still going to the grocery store and stuff. We aren't sick, so we aren't, like, isolating. We're just social distancing. Yeah. We hope everyone listening is healthy and is taking steps to guard their health and to guard the health of those around them. Yes. And if you are sick, we hope you get well soon, mm-hmm. whether that's with COVID or, you know, the standard cold that people get around this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, speedy recoveries. Yes. But I know when I'm sick, I just kind of want to veg on the couch and just, like, watch movies. Luckily, we're really well set up for that. Yeah. And we're really well set up to spread good movies and... But not germs. Right. And good conversation to our listeners. And, in fact, I do want to take a moment to just thank our newest supporter on our Patreon. Oh. Uh, So that's Shanna Carter. Thanks, Shanna. Thank you, Shanna. You can become a patron of the night, just like Shanna by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast. Now, Shanna, I don't know who you're related to, and you probably get this a lot, but I feel like we can now say that the podcast has some kind of relation to Aaron Carter. 
That is, is that not the, the direction. See, I knew you were going to do a bad joke, but that was not the direction I thought you were going to go. Oh, well, where did you think I was going to go? Well, I hear Shanna Carter, and my brain goes like Sharon Carter from Marvel Comics, and like therefore Peggy Carter, and like that sort of direction. So, Maybe Shanna is actually like the daughter of John Carter of oh, Mars. Right, yep. I'm sure that she's just shaking her head like, why did I decide to patronize this podcast? <laughs> Well, thank you, Shanna. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, what are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching the 1949 film adaptation of Yatsia Kaiden, uh, which is the ghost story of Yatsia uh, from Japan. Cool. We've had one other Japanese film on the list. Mm-hmm. Kuruta Ichipeji. Yeah, A Page of Madness. Mm-hmm. What year was that again? It was 1926. Like 26. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah um... Yotsuya Kaiden from 1949 is an adaptation of a traditional Japanese uh, kabuki play that is very popular in Japan to this day, uh, is still like regularly performed, and it is not the first film adaptation of Yotsuya Kaiden, but it is the first surviving film adaptation, which is why we are watching it now and have not seen any of the previous versions. Uh, but with such a long history attached to this play and its sort of broader historical cultural context, um, I think it's probably a good idea to help those in our audience who are not familiar with Kabuki or not familiar with the play or not familiar with, like... Japan? Feudal Japan. Yeah. Yeah, to kind of settle into all this. Absolutely. Listeners, you might have seen images, whether um, like photos of kabuki plays or of woodcuts of kabuki plays, um, without actually knowing what it is. Uh, Kabuki is kind of characterized by players, the performers, having rice flour on their faces, and then um, they'll have lines drawn on in like very bold colors, kind of the most uh, recognizable is red Mm -hmm. on their face. Um, And it's very extravagant. Yeah, it's very stylized. Very stylized. It's very um, in your face and mm. involved. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's really cool. It was started in 1603 by Okuni Itsumono. She's kind of a big deal, so you might have just heard of Okuni, okay. um, as she's just known as. And in 1603, she organized an all-female troupe and directed the acting and dancing of the troupe. The earliest kabuki performances were mainly just singing and dancing, often very provocatively. Okay. Um, so, like, a kind of burlesque? Sure. Not necessarily stripping. No, I mean, like, burlesque in the classic, traditional sense of burlesque. Sure. Yeah, I think you could characterize it that way. And this new style... Uh, of performance was a big hit. So rival troops were organized, often at brothels, because that's where you're going to find a lot of women with free time to do this type of thing. Sure. So kabuki was a very common form of entertainment in Edo's red light district. It was banned in 1629 for being too erotic. Fair. So... In order to keep that kind of entertainment going, just can't have women, they 
organizers and troops started having young boys in, but because right. young boys were also um, available for the sex trade, mm-hmm. that was banned. Well, yeah, and I mean, like, let's say that you had some like erotically charged material uh, that you were putting up, let's say, on YouTube, like, you know, women stripping or burlesque or or something like that. And then YouTube was like, hey, man, you can't have this content. Like, it's too saucy. Take it down. And you were like, cool. And you just kept doing it, but with, like, young boys? I could see why then (laughs) YouTube would be like, no, man, like, you you do not understand. You need to stop. So after, uh, like, young boy kabuki was banned... Um, all male, adult male troops started next, um, with men cross-dressing for female roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you want to take all the sex appeal out of something, putting adult men in it. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> so, the uh, male performers who would um, take on the female roles were called onigata. And the reason they have a particular name is because there's a very specialized kind of training that they go through in order to perform in this manner. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not just cross-dressing. It's not just drag queens. Mm -hmm. It's a very specific type of performance. Um, All of Kabuki is a very stylized kind of acting and even the movement if a play wasn't specifically dance-focused, the movement could still be described as dance because it's all very purposeful. Mm-hmm. And it's all about kind of the spectacle of the show. So for Kabuki, um, the stage was near where the audience would be, but there would be walkways as well. So they'd be walking in along the audience. Okay. Kind of think like, you know, if you've been to a concert like Lady Gaga or something, or like Beyonce at... Um, Coachella, where she has that walkway. Kind of think like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there would be trap doors for surprise entrances and exits. Revolving stages. Um, <laughs> at least in Japan. Uh, in Kabuki, the idea of uh, strapping a fishing line to an actor so they can fly across the stage came from Kabuki. Right. And even like costume changes mid-scene, whether that's, like, a quick change or, like, stagehands coming in and, like, taking clothes off so you'd be wearing, like, multiple layers. Mm -hmm. Um, Even scenery changes mid-scene. A lot of spectacle of, like, what's going on and very involved. The closest, like, Western equivalent I can think of is, like, Grand Guignol Theater from, like, early 20th century France, which was very, like, spectacle-focused. Yeah, sure. And part of that spectacle is with the makeup I I described earlier with that rice flower base, so, like, just completely white faces. It's called kumadori makeup, where the facial lines are in red, blue, black, green, purple, um, depending on the mood or motivations behind that character. So red is heroic, but, like, green is supernatural, for example. Right. Um, And there's, like, specific archetypes in kabuki plays, yeah? Yes, absolutely. There are three main types of kabuki plays. The first being jidaimono, mm-hmm. which is historical. So think of um, 47 Ronin, mm-hmm. for example, uh, which is a play that was often double-featured with Yatsuya Kaiden. 
because the censors at the time yeah. in Edo wouldn't allow like present day type of plays, um, historical plays tended to do the thing where like we're about this war in like 1611, but really it's about what's happening today. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Then we had Siwamono, which were more domestic plays, um, focusing on family drama, romance, love suicide plays. And then the last type is Shosegoto, which is the dance focused. Okay, so I'm hearing historical, I'm hearing like soap opera, and I'm hearing like dance. I'm not hearing ghost story or, or, or horror story. I'm just trying to figure out where Yatsuya Kaiden fits in as a kabuki play. Yatsuya Kaiden would be of this second type because okay. of the focus on the domestic life. Oh, okay, sure. Um, even though Yatsuya Kaiden stars samurai and ronin um, and like historical performances tended to also include samurai and ronin it wasn't like specifically like that it's more like the focus of what is going on um kabuki plays tended to include themes involving duty morality and the transient nature of the world okay which comes from buddhism right one of the neat things about kabuki is um performances would occur throughout the entire day Okay. So that's why double features, or even triple features, were pretty common, and they had a particular order. So you'd perform the first historical play, and then once that was done, then you would have the second play, which was domestic, and then you might end with um, a dance play. Right, and those would be, basically you had a three-show program that lasts the whole day. Yeah. More often than not, it was just the two show program um but dances did occur so right and so that's why you have the pairing of 47 ronin as the historical play with yatsuya kaiden as the domestic play yes yatsuya kaiden was performed in 1825 during what is considered the golden age of kabuki where a lot of these styles and structures were formalized in the 1840s there were frequent droughts in edo causing a ton of fires and the wooden stages and theaters of Kabuki uh, had difficulties with the fires. Right, yeah. The shogun of Edo at the time, think of him as like a military dictator. He was not a fan of Kabuki, especially of how the performances would bring low and basically merchant class people together. Mm -hmm. So he used these fires as a way to force Kabuki out and to relocate away from Edo. However, in 1868, the Tokugawa shogunate fell, so under the reign of Emperor Meiji, Kabuki was able to return to Edo. Emperor Meiji coming to power is the transition into what's known as the Meiji period, and that's also the period when Japan started opening up its borders to Western influence. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of different cultural influences coming in, and Kabuki adapted fairly well to these changes, Kabuki was doing so well, in fact, that in 1887, uh, Emperor Meiji sponsored a performance, which kind of like shows like, hey, look, Kabuki, we've come out of the red light district. Right, and yeah, now we're yeah. With the emperor. Yeah, we're respectable. <laughs> exactly. While Kabuki adapted to these new Western influences, Onagata didn't quite. 
When film was introduced into Japan in the 20s, Onagata continued playing women in film, but there was this push for realism. It was part of a movement called Shingeki, um, and that started introducing women into playing female roles. Mm-hmm. Um, so Onagata actually staged a protest in 1922 because of the lack of work that was around. Um, and because of those efforts, as well as recognizing how unique onagata are to the kabuki art form, um, kabuki remains all male even today. Hmm. Yeah, we talked in our episode on A Page of Madness about how the director of that film was an onagata put out of work by the rise of female actresses and basically ended up becoming a film director as, like, something to do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the timing of this film, 1949. After World War II, when the United States was occupying Japan, they banned kabuki. Oh, okay, huh. Because of the art form's support for the war. Yeah. But that ban was lifted in 1947. Oh, okay, so it didn't last very long then. No, but it's still, I think, significant. Sure. Um, Partly because that meant Kabuki was no longer in, like, the public eye. Because Kabuki had done a lot to support the war effort, with it trying to come back in 1947, uh, they had a hard time because a lot of the general public rejected ideas of the past. Yes. Um, They wanted to move forward. They wanted to um, change cultural identities, Mm -hmm. things like that. So Kabuki was having a really hard time coming back. But thanks to theater director Tatsuji Takechi and his adaptations of classic Kabuki plays into theater and film, Kabuki was able to re-enter the cultural milieu of uh, post-war Japan. A lot of the theatrical efforts were in 1947 to 55, uh, and then Takechi started um, adapting Kabuki plays into film in 1963 and onward. Okay. Now, the play's author is Siraya Namboku IV, but he was born as Ibiya Genzo. Okay. <laughs> I don't, like, I get. Stage names. I understand stage names, but I don't know if I've ever seen a stage name that was like blah da 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 the fourth. I think it'll all become clear when I give you his uh, his backstory. Gotcha. As a playwright, Abia was known for frequently having supernatural and dark themes in his work. Okay. He became an apprentice of the kabuki dramatist Sakurada Jusuke the first, also known as Sato. Oh, cool. Sato wrote uh, 120 plays, 100 dance dramas, and was notable for his wit and satire, so he's Mm -hmm. kind of a big deal. Yeah. Around 1780, while still being an apprentice, Abiya married the daughter of notable kabuki actor Siraya Namboku III. Okay. I see. He took on that name, but as the fourth, in 1811. Okay, so he's the son-in-law yeah. of Suraya Namboku III. Yes. Gotcha. He became the chief playwright for the Kawaraki Theater in 1801. Okay. Now, Namboku, um, like I said, would use like supernatural themes, 
but he would use macabre ghost stories to explore domestic themes. So in that domestic style Mm -hmm. of kabuki plays. He wrote around 120 plays, with his most popular works being these kind of ghostly domestic stories. Like in 1813, Isome Hisamatsu Ukina no Yomiuri, Uh. which translates as Isome and Hisamatsu, a scandal sheet. (laughs) So that's, you know, the two character names. And 1825's Tokaido Yotsuwa Kaiden, which is the ghost story of Yotsuwa in Takaido, which is like place names. Yeah, it's like saying the ghost story of Calgary in Alberta. Exactly. He died in 1829. Okay. And, and Yotsuwa Kaiden was written in 1825? Yeah. Okay. So if they're ghost stories with like domestic themes and characters, basically that's the same as gothic horror, right? Yes. A little bit. Gothic is a style all of its own, and I feel like Kabuki itself is a style on and all in its sure. own, so I don't really want to combine them yeah, or compare it, them. It's it's not about like they're the same thing, it's just they're they're comparable in the same way that like there is a lot of translation you can do between like, say, uh samurai stories, uh like Chambara movies and Western movies, right? Sure. Uh so Takaido Yotsuwa Kaiden is a five-act play, and it became the most famous Japanese ghost story ever. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's been adapted over 30 times, um, and as with any adaptations, the details change a bit. Mm -hmm. And this is from 1825. So over two centuries, details can change. Yeah, of course. I mean, this is older than, like, say, Dracula, and look how many different permutations of Dracula there can be. Absolutely. As we mentioned earlier, um, it was a frequent double feature with Kanadehon Chushingura, which is 47 Ronin. Mm -hmm. Usually, when doing a double feature, it would be first play, second play. Right. But what they chose to do with 47 Ronin and Yotsuwa Kaiden is they would interweave them. Yeah, because both of them are really long. They are really long. There's like eight acts for 47 Ronin. It's ridiculous. Um, kabuki plays tended to be an all-day affair, mm-hmm. but in interweaving these two stories, it became a two-day affair. So on the first day, they would perform the acts one to four for 47 Ronin, and then acts one to three for Yatsu Kaiden, mm-hmm. and then day two would be the remaining acts. Right, and 47 Ronin first, Yatsuya Kaiden second. Exactly. So it's still that same structure of like historical first, domestic second, but we're just alternating them rather than doing like one day is all 47 Ronin, one day is all Yatsuya Kaiden. Yeah. That's really cool. And I think the reason that they did it is, um, listener, if you don't know the story of 47 Ronin, um, actually it might be good for me to explain, Ronin are like... Samurais without a job. A samurai um, is someone who's been trained in the way of the sword, uh, you know, fancy sword skills, um, but he has a master, and he or a lord, and he serves that lord. When that lord died, um, traditionally, uh, that samurai was supposed to commit suicide to preserve his own honor. That fell out of favor. 
<laughs> not everyone was that hardcore. Yeah. I mean, Worf probably would do it, but not sure. like the average samurai. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then you would have these uh, wandering, jobless samurai who ca- became known as ronin. Um, because of the idea of, like, well, you didn't commit suicide when your guy died, so you don't have any honor. Yeah. With 47 ronin, the idea is that uh, these 47 samurai lost their lord because their lord was driven to suicide. So then these 47 guys team up and go after the guy who drove their master insane. Right. And the sort of, like, central kind of conflict of the story really is that, like, they spend a year prepping for revenge instead of what they should have done, which is all killed themselves. Yeah, so it's a story, and a very famous story in Japan, revolving around honor and duty. Yeah, and and sort of where the differences lie between loyalty and duty. Yeah, and then that's contrasted with Yatsua Kaiden, which follows a ronin, so a a lordless samurai, um, and him being an asshole. (laughs) Yeah, being actually someone who doesn't have any honor. Yeah, so there's, like, a neat um, thematic resonances by comparing and bringing these two together and mm-hmm. interweaving them. That's mm-hmm. why I think it's really cool that they interwove them. Yeah. So let me tell you what the story's about. Do we want, like, a content warning? Uh, sure. Content warning. Um, it's feudal Japan. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> uh, there's, um... More specifically, the story features themes of, like, domestic abuse, violence, murder, uh, sexual assault, and sexual violence, and, you know, just sort of all of those, like, Games of Thronesian themes that um, can be upsetting. Yeah, for sure. So we follow Tamiya Yemen, who is a ronin, and he is married to Oriwa. One day, his father-in-law, Semon, comes to him and says... Hey, um, I think you and my daughter should separate. I don't think you're actually good for my daughter. Yemen loses his temper and murders his father-in-law. Hey, I think, uh, listen, so you're a ronin, right? So I think maybe you're without honor and a piece of shit. So maybe you should divorce my daughter. Promptly is murdered. Yes. (laughs) Proving his point. Proving said point. Yeah. At the same time, we see a samurai named Nausuke, uh, who is just absolutely in love and infatuated with the sex worker Asode, who happens to be Oriwa's sister. Uh, now, Asode is married to Sato Yomoshichi, and they're like, no, Nausuke, like, we don't want you around here. So Nasuke gets, like, drunk and is upset and thinks he's going to go kill Yomoshichi, but instead accidentally kills his former master, Okuda Shotsaburo. So basically, Nasuke turns himself into a ronin. Yeah. Congratulations, you ronin to yourself. <laughs> Nasuke and Yemen meet up, and they're like, oh man, I just killed this dude. And they're both like, wait, you killed a dude? Oh, okay, so we'll be... So we... We'll be murderer friends. We'll be murderer friends. 
So Yemen and Nasuke say that they will team up to go find the murderer of um, both Nasuke's former master and Oriwa's and Asode's father, and in return, Asode will marry Nasuke. So they kill these guys, and then they turn around and they're like, a brutal murder has taken place. We shall be the detectives on the scene exactly. and discover who the foul villain is. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's a woman named Ume. Mm-hmm. She loves Yemen. Um, and her grandfather, Ito Kiei, says, Ah, I'll get Oriwa out of the way so that Ome can marry Yemen. So he sends uh, this, like, corrosive face cream to Oriwa, who, when she puts it on, it causes scarring, her left eye goes droopy, and she starts losing all of her hair. It's a bad scene. Mm-hmm. Instantly scarred, Yemon is like, Ooh, uh, I want a divorce, but I have to do this honorably. So he asks the owner of the brothel, where Sode works, to go and rape her. Yeah, because you can't divorce your wife because she's ugly now. Yes. Like, that's not an acceptable reason for divorce. You have to have cause. But if your wife was like raped then like that's dishonored her and that dishonor can pass on to you so you can divorce your wife to get rid of that dishonor exactly um feudal japan everyone um instead of raping oriwa the brothel owner shows her a mirror and she realizes that oh wait that's why you're here you're you're here to do this yemon has set me up and she gets hysterical she grabs a sword and she runs as if she's going to go, like, fight her husband. Um, but in the struggle with the brothel owner, uh, her, the sword accidentally cuts her throat, and so she dies. Yemon's fine with this, though. He he marries Ume. Yeah, everything worked out. Yeah, he's like, like yeah, one way or another. Yeah. Except that Oriwa's vengeful ghost starts to haunt him. And on the wedding night... Oriwa's ghost tricks Yemon into killing both Ume and her grandfather. Tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yemon, still haunted, murders the rest of the Ito household. You know how murders get. Yeah. You're like, oh, I've killed you. Now I have to kill you because you saw me kill her. Oh, now I have to kill you because you're in the same household and you'll ask questions. Oh, now I have to kill you because you're paid by that guy. And Oh, it's just a chain. Exactly. exactly. Uh, Nasuke sees this <laughs> and decides to blackmail Yemon for a mysterious document. And Nasuke does this while disguised as an eel vendor. <laughs> um, and this act, this part, ends with Nasuke and Yamoshichi, who is Asode's uh, husband, ex-husband, I guess, fighting over this document. And that is the first half that is played on the first day of the Kabuki play. Mm -hmm. um, so on the second day of the Kabuki play, um, we have two acts left, and it features Nasuke pressuring Asode to finally consummate their marriage, um, but she's really resistant to do so. Um, they're about to have the sex when Asode's ex-husband, Yamoshichi, barges in and accuses Asode of adultery. She 
feels a lot of shame over everything. Um, and so for atonement, she resigns herself to death. But before she leaves, she gives Nosuke a note that tells him that she was his sister. Gah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so between that, um, the residual shame of killing his master, um, all of this story, Nosuke commits suicide. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Yemon is still haunted by Oiwa. He retreats to the mountains. He descends into madness with dreams blurring with reality. Yamushichi finds him, Yamushichi being Asode's husband, mm-hmm. ex-husband, um, finds him and kills Yemon, both out of vengeance for his own shittiness, mm-hmm. <laughs> his, own, his own shit that's happened, but also out of compassion because he's gone mad. Mm-hmm. And that's the story. Yeah. That is the story. Yeah, so Yamashichi comes out fine. Well... Fine-ish. He's alive. Right. Yeah, everyone else is dead. Um, and the brothel owner is also still alive. Sure, fair. Mm-hmm. Kaiden was a huge smash hit. Um, likely due to the way that it had some pretty dramatic things happen. You know, yeah. that spectacle is what people want. Um, a lot of mood setting... And a lot of, um, like, I guess you could say universal domestic themes Mm -hmm. of shitty husbands and um, a wife, like Oriwa, being able to enact revenge on said shitty husband. Yeah, yeah. Oriwa's kind of like a, uh, I don't want to say like aspirational figure, but like, you know, it was just kind of like a, 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 a version of like a power fantasy for like women in the audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... Big part of that is that the other famous kabuki ghost in this time period is um, a ghost named Okiku. Now she is she's a servant in the samurai's household. The samurai keeps being like, "Hey, let's bone," and she keeps being like, "No, please don't." Um, so he tricks her into thinking that she's broken one of the uh, ten plates in a set. So she's frantically counting each plate, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and when she can't find the tenth plate, she freaks out. Um, the samurai goes, hey, but if we bone, I'll forgive your dishonor for breaking a plate, and she's like, no, dude, I don't want to fuck you, so he tosses her down the well. Mm-hmm. Okiku then haunts him, not in the same way that we see with Oiwa of, like, making him go mad, but you just hear her voice counting to nine and then shrieking at ten. And the story goes that if you hear her counting to nine, if you yell out ten, then she'll go away. Hmm. So it's a haunting, but it's not as, like, aggressively vengeful. Sure. It's, it's like, the difference between, like, the kind of thing where, like, oh, if you throw salt over your shoulder, you know, you can make this thing go away, versus, like a Bloody Mary kind of situation where, like, she's going to come out of the mirror and kill you or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Oriwa is, is great because she's very active in her vengeance. Yeah. She has agency. She's not passively haunting him through just, like, oh, this counting and screaming is getting really annoying. <laughs> it's, like, a much more, like, active thing. Yeah. Oriwa, as a figure of, like, Japanese horror, mm-hmm. is pretty... 
um, notable as well. I guess there's like a moment in the play after she's put on the face cream that she's brushing her hair and um, the hair just keeps falling out. Um, and so long black hair for a ghost mm-hmm. kind of comes from Oiwa. Um, as well as uh, because of her disfigurement, she's very iconic because she has a drooping left eye and partial baldness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a recognizable image. Yeah. She's really, like, popular with, like, Yukioe artists, and, like, you can find lots of, like, traditional Japanese art depicting her. Yeah. Yeah, she's pretty dope. I mean, <laughs> like, it's, like, with such a, a freaky look to her, yeah. too. Yeah. So that's Yotsuwa Kaiden. Yeah, so being as popular as it is, uh, it wasn't very long before Yotsuwa Kaiden was adapted to film, once film became a thing. Uh, the earliest adaptation of Yatsuya Kaiden was a short film in 1911. More shorts followed in 1912, 1913, 1914, and 1915. And then the first feature-length version was in 1921. The second feature-length version was 10 days later. <laughs> there were two versions in 1923, another in 1925, and then the first two-part adaptation came in 1927. A very notable version was in 1928 uh, from famous director Daisuke Ito, who was a central figure in the development of Jidaigeki cinema, which is period cinema. Um, he was affectionately called Ito Daisuki, which means loves motion uh, <laughs> due to his use of moving camera, but it's also like a pun on his name, Daisuke Ito. Um, and then there was actually yet another version that same year as well. Wow. The first sound version came in 1936, and there was a second sound version in 1937. All of these prior versions are lost, due largely to the firebombing of Tokyo in World War II and the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, due to the already vulnerable nature of nitrate film, uh, a vast majority of pre-war Japanese cinema is lost. Um, just, you know, it's not, the archives don't survive through that. Yeah. Now, after World War II, as Sarah mentioned, Japan came under occupation of the United States, a state of affairs which lasted until 1952. A major program of the occupation was cultural reprogramming basically, uh, working to transform Japan from an imperial theocracy where dying for the glory of the state was promoted as the highest honor into a liberal Western-style democracy with free elections and rights for women and so on and so forth. Now, the way this was done, um, you know, there's a lot of fair criticism that can be leveled at the U.S. occupation, but I think purely from like a anthropological standpoint, the way that the United States went about doing this was really interesting because they wanted to preserve traditional Japanese cultural institutions like the Shinto religion, but change their focus away from like military uh, honor and service to more like Western modern ideas like science and technology and capitalism. So there was this understanding, like, you can't go into the country and just say, oh, Shinto's illegal. The idea behind the cultural reprogramming was to basically, uh, for lack of a better word, like, neuter Japan 
so that it wouldn't start another war. Because Japan's whole culture had been really centered on this kind of like... Imperialism. Imperialism and expansionism and conquering and, and all of this kind of stuff. And so there was a recognition on the part of the Americans that you couldn't just leave them be because that creates like a Germany after World War One situation where you just have like a very like angry, militaristic culture that's going to like come back for revenge, basically. But they also recognized they couldn't just come in and like outlaw traditional Japanese culture. That wasn't going to work. So you had this thing where they were stripping away the nationalism and the jingoism out of Shinto religion. So like the emperor is no longer a god kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And trying to then like replace those values with American values, which created some really interesting side effects where, you know, before you had this like idea that you like threw yourself into being a warrior, you know, whether that was a samurai or a military officer and like you gave everything for your country or your Lord or your emperor or whatever. And that got replaced with uh, a Japan where you throw everything into being an employee and you sacrifice everything for your company mm -hmm. instead. Uh, and this created, of course, the like economic boom Japan of the 1960s and the technological boom Japan of the 1970s uh, because, you know, the Japanese don't do anything halfway, basically. <laughs> uh, now, a major arm of this cultural reprogramming was a censorship office that regulated the content of Japanese films during the occupation. Uh, so there was tight control around any films that addressed, like, war-related topics uh, that... Uh, contained stories promoting nationalism or um, jingoism. There was also a um, regulation forbidding any mention of the atomic bombings mm -hmm. in Japanese film. Uh, and so this kind of very much limited the kind of stories that could be presented. And it was in this context that the production of Yatsuya Kaiden that we are looking at today came about. Interesting. The film studio that produced this version was Shochiku, which is the oldest currently operating film studio in Japan. Oh, it's still around. Yes. It was founded in 1895 as a kabuki company, <laughs> uh, but it began producing films in 1920. Uh, now, there were other Japanese film studios in existence by 1920, but Shochiku is considered the oldest because it was founded earlier as this kabuki company. Yeah. Now, Shochiku was the first Japanese film studio to try to move away from traditional Japanese narrative forms. So a lot of those traditional kabuki and no formats became film formats early on. So like Jidai Mono, which you mentioned, became Jidai Geki. Um, but Shochiku wanted to emulate modern Hollywood. So Shochiku was actually the company that brought in female actresses uh, and created the Shingeki movement that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, the focus on realism. Right, and telling contemporary dramas about regular people instead of, like, historical dramas about, like, larger-than-life figures, right? Shochiku also produced Japan's first sound film in 1931, and um, its president, Shiro Kido, helped to found the Greater Japan Film Association, which was created to better coordinate the Japanese film industry as a propaganda arm of the government. 
And it's because of that that after the war, Kido and one of Shochiku's co-founders, Takajiro Otani, were arrested and charged with Class A war crimes. Uh, Class A war crimes are defined as conspiracy to incite war. Okay. This version of Yatsuya Kaiden was produced and directed by Keisuke Kinoshita. Now, Keisuke Kinoshita is one of the most prolific Japanese directors. He directed 42 films in the first 23 years of his career uh, and had 51 directing credits total from 1943 to 1988. Damn. Now, Kinoshita was never really well-known internationally, like, say, Akira Kurosawa, but he was very well-known in Japan and was very popular with audiences and critics throughout his career in Japan, which sort of puts him in contrast to Kurosawa, who was always more popular abroad than at home. Kinoshita was born in 1912, to a family of grocers. When a film crew arrived in his hometown to shoot a movie uh, when he was in high school, Kinoshita ran away with them after they left town for Kyoto. Oh my god. But his grandfather came and found him and brought him back home. Uh, He still wished to become a filmmaker, however, so in order to secure a position at Shochiku, Kinoshita attended a photography school got his start at the studio in the film processing lab, before rising from there to become a camera assistant and then an assistant director. In 1943, he directed his first feature film, The Blossoming Port, and won the Best New Director Award that year. Dang. That was the same year that Akira Kurosawa made his first film. So he won Best New Director the same year that Akira Kurosawa was also a new director. Do they have, like... A rivalry? They were actually buddies. Oh, that's good. Okay. Kinoshita made films in every genre. He shot in every style. Uh, He has realistic movies. He has super stylized movies. He has comedies. He has dramas. He does... Right. He does everything. In 1951, he made Japan's first color feature film, Carmen Comes Home. And his 1961 film, Immortal Love, was nominated for a Best Foreign Film Award at the Academy Awards. He was publicly gay and frequently was involved with his handsome, stylishly dressed assistant directors, which is to say that you had to be handsome and stylishly dressed to be one of his assistant directors. Sure. He was honored with the Order of the Rising Sun in 1984, and he passed away in 1998 at age 86. Cool. The film's screenplay is by Ejiro Hisaita, who also wrote... Mourning for the Asone Family in 1946, and Apostasy in 1948 for Kinoshita, as well as writing No Regrets for Our Youth in 1946, The Idiot in 1951, The Bad Sleep Well in 1960, and High and Low in 1966 for Akira Kurosawa, among many other films. The film's star is Kinuyo Tanaka, who portrays both Oiwa and Asode in a dual performance. She was born in 1909, and made her film debut in 1924. She was very popular and very prolific. She was one of the most popular Japanese actresses, appearing in over 250 films in her 50-year career. In the 1930s, she was so popular that the movie she appeared in used her name in the title. (laughs) Like, it would be like, um, Kinuyo's Love Story, or Kinuyo Goes to Hokkaido, or something like that. Like, it would literally be like, if, like, you know, today we had movies that were just called, like, 
Brie Larson gets in trouble or something like that. <laughs> oh, I want to see that. What she get in trouble for? Yeah. She starred in Japan's first sound film, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, and she also starred in the highest grossing film of the pre-war period, 1938's Flower in Storm. After the war, she transitioned to playing more challenging roles. She sought to push herself as an actress. And while continuing her acting career, she also became Japan's second female director in 1953, directing five films over the next decade. She passed away in 1977. The role of Yeman is portrayed in this film by Ken Uehara, who was born in 1909 and had been acting on film since 1935. Tokusatsu genre fans will know him from his supporting roles in 1961's Mothra, 1962's Gorath, and 1963's Atragon. The role of Omaki is played by Haruko Sugimara, who was also born in 1909, and is recognizable from roles in 1946's No Regrets for Our Youth, 1943's Tokyo Story, 1964's Kwaiden, and 1965's Redbeard. The role of Okura is played by Chouko Iida, a veteran of 300 film appearances. Whoa. She was born in 1897 as Teifu Aida, uh, and before she was an actress, she was a seamstress, a clerk, and an entertainment news reporter. She became an actress in 1919 when a kabuki company placed an ad in her newspaper looking for women actresses. In 1922, she was hired by Shochiku, and even as a young woman, she was primarily cast as maids, old women, and other sexually unappealing parts, for which she got a lot of praise. <laughs> she married camera operator Hideo Shigehara in 1927 and continued acting into old age, winning a Medal of Honor in 1963 and passing away in 1972. The role of Kohei is played by Keiji Sada, who was one of the most popular actors of the post-war period. He was born in 1926 and he became an actor because he roomed at a boarding house as a student that was owned by a Shochiku actor and was then, like, spotted and hired by the studio. Nice. His debut film was in 1947 with um, Keisuke Kinoshita's Phoenix, in which he had a love scene with Kinuyo Tanaka, which immediately boosted his popularity. Sure. His breakout hit was an adaptation of a popular radio drama in 1949, and after that, he appeared in an average of 10 films a year, uh, every year until he passed away in a tragic car accident in 1964. Okay. A little bit of a James Dean ending there. Yeah. Uh, basically, Keiji Sada is James Dean if James Dean appeared in 10 films a year for 15 years instead of, like, three movies in the 50s. Yeah. The film's score is by Chuji Kinoshita, Keisuke's brother, who typically did the scores for all of Keisuke's films. Uh, he actually passed away in 2018. Fairly recently. Hiroshi Kasuda, the cinematographer, was also a standard Kinoshita collaborator. The film was released in two parts due to its length, uh, which was a standard practice in Japanese cinemas at the time. Part 1 debuted on July 5th, 1949, with part two following on July 16th. The film was largely praised by critics, although it gained a reputation as being politically themed, 
and it also had some controversy over its decision to ground the story in reality and portray Oiwa's ghost as merely a representation of Yemen's guilty psyche. Interesting. Okay. Rather than the ghost that she's been this whole time. Yeah, so the movie basically takes away the supernatural elements of the story and shows her just as being, like, in Yemen's head. Currently, the movie, uh, in both parts, is available to stream on the Criterion channel. I presume you would also be able to purchase from Criterion. It's actually only streaming right now. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. It's part of a whole selection of Keisuke Kinoshita films. I think they have everything he ever did on there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're working on, like, a box set. Yeah, I suspect that. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely keep our eyes out for that. Folks, if you would like to watch along, subscribe to the Criterion channel. Um, you're going to hear a brief musical break, and when we come back, we will discuss both parts of Yatsuwa Kaiden from 1949, directed by Keisuke Kinoshita. See you on the other side, everybody. After watching both parts of Yatsia Kaiden. Sarah, uh, I really enjoyed this. I think, like, I mean, listener, don't don't watch one part without, like, it's not like a Batman, Batman Returns situation. Like, it's, No, you need to watch both parts. Yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly, like, one thing. Um, you know, maybe do it on two, like, subsequent nights or something, but, like... Yeah, because they're each, like, an hour and a half. Well, that's the thing. Like, part one is an hour and 25 minutes. And I think the spot that divides part one and two makes sense. Yeah. But part two is, like, an hour and 15 minutes, and the first 15 minutes of part two is just the last 15 minutes of part one again. So I get the feeling that what this really was was, like, a two-and-a-half-hour movie... And, like, you know, Shochiko was like, no, we're not putting a two-and-a-half-hour Yatsuya Kaiden into theaters. And so then it became... Part one, part two. Part one, part two. Yeah, They exactly. kill build it. Yes, exactly. But it was also very different than, like, the plot summary you gave for the, for the Kabuki play. Yes. And I think... And, like, the broadest strokes, it's there. Yes. And the spectacle of Kabuki is gone. Yeah, it's it's because it's this, like, down-to-earth, like, realistic take. Uh, I mean, we'll get into all of this a lot more when we, when we sort of dig in deep into the movie. Um, but I think it was a very, like, the, the decisions and the changes made were very interesting. And I will say that, like, the one piece of information we don't have is how many of these changes are coming for the first time in this movie, and how many of them have, like, come from previous adaptations in between the play and this. Changes get not only added to things, but then they, like, stay on, like, barnacles, and we don't know how much is unique to this movie, but I think it is worth, like, 
going into the movie in some detail so that we can discuss those changes. So uh, why don't you give us the new revised plot summary for Yatsia Kaiden? <laughs> for sure. Um, so part one, Nesuke and a character named Kohei, who is not in the play, mm-hmm. sabotage a jailbreak. Uh, they are in jail, and they tell on their fellow inmates. Mm-hmm. In exchange for an early release. Yeah. Kohei, once he's out, begins looking for Oiwa um, because he is in love with her. Now, she worked at a tea house. Heavy quotation marks. And that's where he met her, but he's been in jail for three years and now he wants to find her. Through him, we meet Asode and Yamosichi. Asode is Oiwa's younger sister, but they look so much alike, almost as if they're played by the same actress. Yeah. Nausuke, meanwhile, becomes a gardener and neighbor to Yemon and Oiwa. Mm-hmm. There are like six people in this universe. Yes, that is accurate. <laughs> so, uh, one day, Nausuke witnessed Yemon saving a woman from like a crowd, and this woman is Ome. And Ome just, like, falls head over heels over this mysterious Yemon. Yeah, she's, like, a rich gal. And Yemon, you know, as in the play, is a ronin. And uh, so he's, like, dashing and heroic in her eyes. Nosuke is trying to get Yemon to get with Ume. And he's conspiring with Ume's maid, Omaki. So if you if you were, like, listening to... The Kabuki plays plot synopsis, and you were like, hmm, I wish this play, I wish this story had more female characters who specifically had names that started with O. Mm -hmm. This film delivers. Meanwhile, we see that Kohei's mom is looking for him. And her name starts with an O as well. It's not important, though. (laughs) Kohei mentions to Nesuke one day also that, um... Friends of the gangsters who were in the jailbreak are looking for Nasuke, but they don't know what he looks like. Um, so just keep your head down. And that's that's just another thing I'll put out there. Yeah, and in exchange for helping Nasuke with that, Nasuke basically tells him like where Oiwa is living so that he can go find her. Exactly. Yeah, he's urged by Nasuke to go get Oiwa. Now Nasuke's motivations for doing that is to help. Yemon have a legitimate reason for divorce. Mm-hmm. And Yemon's also, like, pretty, like, on the fence about this whole thing. He really does seem to love Oiwa. They did, they were in love at one point, but their marriage is in shambles right now. And Yemon is just, like, full of pity and despair and, oh, I can't leave her, but I do want a better life. So Nasuke's trying to help him, push him towards Ume. Yeah, and their their marriage is on the rocks and clearly unhappy because it's under a lot of like strain due to like Yemen. Yeah, Yemen's been on un- like a Ronin for three years, so he's been unemployed or seven years maybe. It's yeah, seven years. Yeah, and so their only income is from Oiwa making umbrellas and selling them. And she was pregnant, but when the movie begins, she has just had a miscarriage, so she's like sickly and weak and like at home all the time. Uh, and also, like, you know, the marriage has these strains that you would expect 
we are poor and just had a miscarriage to have on it. So yeah. it's like, this marriage is rocky. Being with Ume would increase your social standing, maybe get you like a master again and money again. But you do actually love Oiwa, but she is getting on your nerves. Like, there's a lot at play here. Yeah, and I feel like it's a very realistic portrayal of a marriage that was originally in love being in shambles. Yeah, because you get the feeling that Yemon is very frustrated with his life and where he's ended up, but he takes that frustration out on Oiwa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it shows the way that like external things can exacerbate. St- yeah, or like put a great strain on a marriage where it's like, you know, they would have been happy and his personal flaws might not have been as big an issue if, right? Yeah. Yemen, for his part, does meet with Ume and her father, and is going along with Nasuke's plan, though begrudgingly. He wants to go with Ome, but he doesn't want to leave Oriwa, so he asks for a divorce. Which is like, okay, you know, that's a grown-up thing to do. His rationale when he tells Oiwa about his wants for a divorce, though, are like, I'm so poor, I can't give you the life you deserve, you'd be better off without me. And And she's like... Have you seen our society? I would be at a lower status without you, but also I love you. We can figure this out together. Yeah, he You want to move to someplace else to try to find work? I will move with you. Yeah, he didn't count on her being a good partner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she begs him to stay. Um, she has a very tragic backstory. Yeah, I mean, she used to work at a tea, tea house... house. And then, uh... Her parents both died, so she was taking care of Osode. If Yemon left, she would have to go back to a tea house. And she's much older now, too. hmm It's, it's... She's just in... You know, she's between a rock and a hard place. And Yemon's, like, pushing her into the rock. Yeah, and he was the one who rescued her from, like, the tea house work by, like, marrying her, right? So, like, mm-hmm. he's her hero, and now he's, like, being a real weird jerk and wanting to get rid of her. Yeah. So Nausuke gives Yemon some poison, but he can't bear to use it. During a second argument about divorce, Oiwa falls face first into some boiling water, basically. So she gets a burn on her face, and um, Nausuke happens to be walking by, so he brings some ointment for her burn. Yemen tells Nausuke the next day, like, yeah, Oiwa was up all night just, like, sobbing, complaining about so much pain. I don't know what we're going to do. And Nausuke's like, yeah, that's because it wasn't ointment. It was, like, acidic, bad cream that's going to cause everything to be worse. Yeah, exactly. And Yemen's like, what the fuck did you do? Yeah. And Oiwa, she, uh... She sees her face and freaks out. She has basically, like, a melted half of her face. Yeah, she's Two-Face from Batman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Think Two-Face. And in pity, this is when Yemon gives her the poison in her tea. She has a pretty painful death, and Yemon is, like, freaking out, because he was told it was going to be painless, and Nausuke is there trying to calm him down. But then (laughs) Kohei shows up. Yeah, he's been regularly making uh, unwanted visits to Oiwa's house to, like, 
stalk and like try to force his love upon her basically. Yeah, it's been uh, real uncomfortable. Yeah. She's had to like shut down the house in order to like keep him away. But anyway, Kohei shows up at like the worst time. It, the moment Oiwa is dying. Yeah, so he overhears like everything and he is ready to fight Nasuke and Yemun and they kill him. Yeah, he says like, I'm gonna go get that gangster who's looking for you. Yeah, so they kill him to keep the plot secret and to keep Nasuke safe. Upon death for both Oiwa and Koei, um, there's some spooky lights that fly out towards the camera. Um, now, there's a old man in the neighborhood who's a masseuse. Um, his name is Takuetsu, and he's been in and around this story so far, just kind of like helping take care of Oiwa as she gets better from her miscarriage and as she had a burning, melting face. So he... And all her hair falling out. And all her hair falling out. Um, so he comes back with some, like, real medicine, and he's like, oh, fuck, this is a scene. <laughs> and then we also cut to Asode uh, hearing some strange knocking at the door, um, and the door opens on its own, but there's no one there. And that's the end of part one. Yeah, so, like, the spooky, horrific stuff... It happens at the end. The very end. And it's just, like, all of these characters kind of weaving in and out of each other's plot lines, like, to get us there, uh, essentially, at that point. But it's a strong, strong ending, for sure. Yeah. So, as Ben mentioned, part two's first 15 minutes are part one's last 15 minutes. But we'll pick up right where I left off. Because of the weirdness with Asode's door opening on its own and hearing weird noises, she goes to check up on Oiwa the next day, but no one's home. Yeah, the house is, like, all boarded up and shit. She runs into Takuetsu, who shares a rumor he heard that Oiwa eloped with Kohei. Unconvinced, Asode and her husband, Yamoshichi, get a detective involved. <laughs> um, Japanese Columbo shows up. <laughs> basically. Um, now the reason that Takuetsu is giving that false story is because he's been paid hush money. Meanwhile, Kohei's mom continues to search for him, and she sees a weird blood-covered door floating in the canal. And from there, the police discover two bodies upriver. Also, meanwhile, Yemon is married to Ume, but guilt plagues him. He dreams of Oiwa and thinks that he sees her lurking around every corner. Yeah, it's it they they pull off like some pretty good like like split second scares and stuff with him like looking and suddenly oh, I was there and then like looking again and she's gone, like stuff with really fast-paced editing that like is pretty normal for how jump scares are done now, but like is really out of the ordinary for 1949. Yeah. Yamoshichi learns of the marriage and he and Asore put two and two together, that Yemen has killed Oiwa. Meanwhile, meanwhile, <laughs> gangsters from the jail have caught up with Nausuke. Turns out one of them is the ex-husband of Omaki, who Nausuke has become romantically involved with. But Nausuke manages to elude them. So Nausuke plans to blackmail Yemen now that he has access to wealth, because Ume's family is rich. Mm-hmm. And they've managed to get Yemen a new job. Like, he's now, like, a samurai again. But the police are closing in. Uh, so Nasuke 
tries to kill Takuetsu to keep him quiet. Takuetsu isn't quite dead yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He got better. Meanwhile, Asode dresses in one of Oiwa's kimonos to see Yemen and pushes guilt a little bit. He freaks out and is running around with a sword. Um, Asoda gets away, but Yemen thinks that she was Oiwa's ghost. Yeah. Nosuke goes to Yemen with the police closing in. Hey, bud, we gotta get out of town. We gotta get to Mexico. Yeah, we gotta get out of here. By the way, I killed Takuatsu, but you are my link. I mean, our link to get some money so we can actually skip town. So help me break into into Ume's family storehouse uh, so we can get some getaway cash. Now see, this is when Nasuke explains that he is an expert thief. One time, in Edo, seven years ago, around the same time that Yemen was a samurai guarding a storehouse in Edo, um, broke into the storehouse and robbed the people blind Funny enough, Yemen was let go from his samurai job for someone breaking into the storehouse and robbing the family blind. Yeah, it was his job to guard the storehouse, so he got, you know, blamed for this. Uh, so Yemen's like, fuck, you're the reason I lost my job seven years ago. You're the reason we were in poverty. You're the reason that my marriage was falling apart. You're the reason I've killed Oiwa. You're the reason that I'm now haunted. And you're the reason why everything is terrible now. And Nosuke's like... What you gonna do? <laughs> Not in a like, what you gonna do, but in a like, shrug. Listen. <laughs> That's we've, life. We've killed some people together, so Let's I... Let's just be a thief now, come like, on. we either skip town together, uh, or, you know, one of us betrays the other. Yeah. So Yemen's too distraught to fight, and he's like, okay, fine, whatever. We'll steal. Okay. Uh, now, Ume has left the house that she has with Yemen because he's been acting so crazy. So she's at her father's place, and Yemen goes to see her. Yeah, it's not just like a sode that he is mistaking for Oiwa's ghost. Like, he's mistaking Ume for Oiwa's ghost, attacking her, and then, like, coming out of these, like, hallucinatory states and being like, Oh, Ume, are you okay? And she's like, uh... <laughs> now, part of the reason why he goes to Ume is because she's at her father's place and it's to help get Nasuke in to steal. But he also wants Ume to run away because without Ume, why have I done any of this? Yeah, so she's got to run away with the two of them. She won't. And in a little bit of a struggle, a fire starts. <laughs> Meanwhile, police have surrounded the house. Nasuke is fighting them off through the now burning up house. Ume's face gets burned. In the exact same place that Oiwa's got burned. Yep. And, um, feeling the, uh, metaphorical and literal house falling around him, Yemen stabs and kills Nasuke. He's overcome with guilt and just keeps repeating, please forgive me, to Oiwa's ghost that he mm -hmm. sees in the house. Meanwhile, Ume is saved by her father and Omaki. The next day, Asore and Yomoshichi are at the scene of the house fire. And they're happy that Oiwa and Kohei are finally at peace. Kohei's mom is also there. She's been being friends with Asode and her husband. Yeah, they made friends when the two of them had to go and identify Kohei and Oiwa's bodies. What a way to start up a friendship. Anyways, it's implied that Asode and Yomoshichi live happily ever after. Uh, Ume is super fucked, though. She still has, like, a fucked up face. 
Uh, her family lost all of the wealth in the fire. Uh, yeah. But they're all alive. Yeah. The end. Yeah, so a lot more people alive by the end of the story than the play. Yes. Like, Yamashichi's the only one who lives in the play. Um, along with, like, just a lot of other, like, differences that sort of compound throughout the story in a really interesting kind of way. So the movie's still called Yatsuya Kaiden, which means ghost story of Yatsuya. And it's really weird to have a ghost story of Yatsuya without the ghost. Yeah, there's no ghost. Yeah, I mean, like, there's... Like, there is a ghost and there isn't a ghost, right? Because, like, there's still scares and, like, hauntings and, like, visions of Oiwa and Kohei, like, haunting Yemen. But it's really pretty heavily implied to be all in his head. Yes. But um, then there are, like, some weird supernatural things that aren't explained as well. Like, the door that opens by itself for a sode, uh, or, like, the lanterns that fly at Takietsu and Yemen, or, like, some of the, like the, some of the stuff that happens to um, Kohei's mom, where, like, she sees the bloody door and it, like, spins by itself. So, like, it's a little bit unclear whether, like, it's not unclear, it's ambiguous. Yeah. It's definitely a story of karma and revenge, which um, I didn't mention this in the context setting, but Kaiden is a particular type of ghost story in Japan that has kind of an old-fashioned feeling to it, but there is an emphasis on karma and revenge. So it is accurate in that sense, Yeah, but it's not directly with the ghost of Oiwa. Yeah, I mean... Even though I knew going in that this was, like, a more realistic take where the ghost was this, like, aspect of Yemen's guilty psyche, I was still expecting more Oiwa in the second half than we got. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing, because with the actress, the same actress playing Asode, the agency that we see in Oiwa from the play is replaced by the agency of Asode. Yeah. Who is, like, taking life by the reins and is, like, very outspoken, especially for a Japanese woman in feudal Japan. Yeah, and she, like, Asode has this whole point of view about, like, Oiwa's big failing was being basically, like, the perfect Japanese wife, which is, like, way too deferential and shy and soft-spoken towards, like, her husband, so that when, like, Yemen was an asshole, she was just like, oh, I'm sorry, it must be my fault, kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, because Oiwa's ghost is kind of reduced to just these, like, brief appearances in Yemen's guilty conscience, it's, like you said, Osode sort of takes over in the second half, but I liked that the film still maintained the play's, like, focus on, like, female retribution. Um, it is kind of spread out to a variety of characters, because we have Osode, who starts the investigation into her sister's disappearance, which leads us eventually to the cops raiding the place at the end. And then we have Omaki, who is, I think, a new character. I don't think she was in the play, but she is sort of the one who, like, lets Nausuke into the household to start, like, pulling these strings. But then he kind of betrays her in the sense that, like, 
they have sex, and Nasuke's like, yeah, sure, baby, sure, I'll marry you, basically. And then for the rest of the movie, she's like, when are you going to marry me? And he's like, ah, yeah, well, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. So when the cops are closing in, and Nasuke's in the house, like, doing his sneaky thief stuff, basically she, like, fucks him over and causes, like, enough of a commotion that the cops know where he is and foils his robbery attempt, right? Yeah. And then to a lesser degree, there's Ume, because... You know, she doesn't have a ton of agency, but her leaving Yemen to go back to her father's house sets off, like, the chain of events that leads to Yemen's own fall, right? Yeah, and I think it's kind of neat how, um, like, I was surprised when Ume's father was like, you know, I had arranged her to marry this guy, but she really loves you, Yemen, so will you marry her? And this is a ronin. Mm -hmm. No real social standing. And he's willing, uh, Ume's father, that is, is willing to follow Ume's wishes. That was surprising. And I think what also was surprising to me, and maybe it's just because we've watched a lot of Hollywood production code movies, but I was so surprised that Omaki did not die. Right, yeah, because she's like kind a... Kind of a morally ambiguous... Woman. Yeah. Yeah, sexually... Active. <laughs> we keep finishing each other's sentences. Um, the other thing about, like, Ume's father is, like... I mean, overall, you get the sense that he's actually interested in, like, her well-being. Yeah. Um, because, like, once it starts to become clear to, clearer to him, like, once he starts putting two and two together in the second half of, like, I think Yemen might be, like, a piece of shit. And this Nowske guy is definitely bad news. Like, he starts to, you know, want to take care of Ume. Like, she goes over to his house because fucking Yemen scared the shit out of her. So Yemen shows up to, like, apologize or whatever, and he's like, mm, mm. She's not here. Yeah, exactly. So, like, he's really interested in his, his daughter's welfare, um, which is kind of neat to see. Yeah. I think it was interesting how this film told this Kabuki story in a realistic way. It took the spectacle out of it, um, the story felt more grounded, even as, you know, at some point you have to kind of let go with the idea of, like, Nausicaa is responsible for everyone's undoing. Yes, literally every <laughs> bad thing that happens in the entire story ultimately is Nausicaa's fault. Um, and, and so it was a weird mix of realism, but also feeling like we had to justify everything and have everything tied up in a nice little bow. Mm -hmm. um, plot-wise, at the very least. Yeah, everyone gets, like, a more down-to-earth motivation and more, like, believable character psychology. Like, Yemen in the play is just, like, a bad guy. Like, yeah. he starts the play by just straight-up killing Oiwa's dad because he comes over to him and is like, hey, you're a bad guy, divorce my daughter. And Yemen's like, I am a bad guy. Ha-ha! <laughs> you're dead now. <laughs> like, whereas here... Yemen's less of a bad guy and more of just, like, kind of a shitty guy. Like, he's just someone who is easily manipulated and he's, like, weak-willed. So he just can easily be, like, convinced to do shitty things. And he also, like, takes out his frustrations and angers on people around him in a way that's, like, unfair. But he's not a bad guy, you know? Mm -hmm. Nowski is the bad guy. And Yemen's just this, like, shitty dude who doesn't really have enough, like backbone of his own to not be shitty. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of a balance of realism and spectacle, um, the makeup for 
the burn marks and the appearance of the ghost mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. Um, I kind of wish that they had gone a little further because as it was, um, Oriwa just had kind of like, like Zuko. She looked like Zuko. Yeah, a little bit like more than that. But yeah, she looks like Zuko from, from Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, and her hair does kind of fall out a little bit. But it's all like very um, toned down from like the horror of the play. It is, I would say, effectively horrific within the more like realistic tone of this movie. Yes. But from compared to the play, it's like super toned down. And, you know, when her hair's coming out, we just sort of see like her from behind, like grabbing her hair in like fear. And then like her hand comes away and there's just a big clump of it in there. It's not the hair brushing thing where she just keeps brushing it out and out and out. And when we do see her fucked up face, it's always for like four frames at a time, right? Like Yeah, it's very quick. It's very quick. So you never like linger on it very long. Um it it's always a good scare, but it's not like a big like revel in the gore kind of thing, which is more what like Kabuki's about. Yeah, I almost feel like at least for myself, I wanted more. Mm-hmm. Um I wanted more shock rather than tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um in the way that the burn is portrayed and and Oiwa's story is kind of portrayed. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I would argue that the stuff sort of, like, towards the end of part one and the start of part two is horrific, but it's not really, like, scary. Like, it's not trying to, like, scare you. I mean, there are some good scares. Yeah, but, like, but it's not trying to go ooga booga booga. Yeah, it's, but it is horrific in the sense of, like... Holy shit. Yeah. What have these guys done? Yeah. These assholes. (laughs) It's interesting when you see an adaptation like this, um, because a lot of times when you do see adaptations that end up, like, pulling away from the source material, a lot of times you can trace it back to, like, one key decision that then kind of dominoes out. I think I know that decision. Okay, what do you think it was? I think it's Kinuyo Tanaka's fault. Okay, why is that? Um, and I don't... Fault is probably the wrong word. The blame is not all on her shoulders. Um, this is the actress who played Oiwa and Asode. In the context setting, you said that she was super famous. Yeah, she's the biggest star in this cast by a large margin. And how she was such a big star that they would use her name in titles of stories, like Her Big Adventure. Yeah, and at this point in her career, it was this is the exact point in her career where she started shifting away from basically like being a hot romantic lead kind of thing to, like, wanting to challenge herself as an actress. Yeah. I just keep thinking of, like, Tanaka goes to Washington. Right, yeah. (laughs) I feel like her fame overtook the needs of at least the original plot. Hmm. Um, Because, you know, if they're wanting to do something realistic, then naturally the ghost is going to have a smaller part. Mm -hmm. But if they want the big star to be throughout the whole movie, she still needs to be there. So then that's why Asode gets such an active part. Yeah, and doesn't die early on. Exactly. That's a really interesting take. I hadn't considered that, but it makes a lot of sense just from, like, the way that we know movies get made, basically. Yeah. Um, What I sort of thought was going on was, like, Kinoshita making this choice that he wanted it to be realistic, and therefore, you know, he knows he has to have a ghost, though. Right? Like, you can't get rid of it entirely. So the ghost becomes Yemen's guilty psyche. Yeah. And from there, it's like, well, 
for Yemen to have guilt, he needs to be the kind of person who would feel guilt, which means he can't be like the outright bastard he is in the play. He has to be like conflicted about things. And so that's like, well, if he's conflicted about things, like why would he do such horrific stuff? And it's like, okay, well, someone else needs to be egging him on. And like you, you have this like deck of cards that kind of like comes out from there Mm -hmm. of like, well, if this, then this, um, yeah, I would love to talk about the implications of having the singular one evil villain of Nosuke. Yes, yeah, some of this I wonder, like, I wonder how much of this is like, well, because we've made this choice in adaptation, we've ended up here. I also wonder how much of this comes from occupation censorship restrictions. I hadn't even thought of that. Because yeah. some of the stuff that... so. As I said, in the context setting, the goal of, like, the cultural programming was to move the Japanese away from, like, these previous cultural values towards, like, more, you know, American-approved cultural values, right? And so one of the things that they were trying to avoid culturally was the glorification of brutal violence and suicide, um, which are heavily glorified (laughs) things in traditional Japanese society. Especially, like, also in... Yatsua Kaiden. Right. So you can't have the characters killing themselves, and you can't really have the, like, wholesale slaughter that you get where, like, he kills Ume's entire family in one night or whatever, right? Yeah. So in the play, what you have is, like, a whole cast full of shitty people, whereas here you have Naosuke and him like, manipulating everyone so that even if other characters are doing horrible things, it's because Nausuke has manipulated them into that position, which then means that we have, like, a clear, like, villain and source of evil, and it means that, like, you don't have everyone else just offing each other left and right and raping each other left and right and all of this kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. The thing about this adaptation is don't think it's invalid. Like, I I think this is a valid reinterpretation of Yatsia Kaiden. I think it's a really interesting reinvention. What's sort of weird about it for us doing this show is it's the first version we are seeing. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, if you were introduced to... The Saw series. But the latest Saw movie was them just like getting, like, paper cuts and lemon juice poured on. (laughs) And you're seeing that, and you're like, huh, okay. But it's totally removed from, like, the original Saw movie, where it's just, like, blood everywhere and guts everywhere. Well, I was trying to find, like, an example where, like, the version you're seeing isn't, like, a complete betrayal of the entire, like, franchise (laughs) and, like, a shitty, crappy, like, children's version. Sure, okay. So what I was trying to get at more was, like, if the very first version, you know, of Sherlock Holmes that you're ever, like, exposed to is, like, Elementary, the TV series, where it's, like, set in the 20th century, and, like, Watson's Lucy Liu, and, like, you know, all this other kind of weird stuff, but, like, it's a good show, but it's not normal Sherlock Holmes, right? Which is, like, very far removed by the time you get to, like, something like Elementary, right? Sure. That's a better example, for sure. I definitely understand the impulse to remix a frequently adapted story, Mm -hmm. um, especially with everything that we've identified um, in terms of pressures, like 
the occupation, um, the push to do realism rather than spectacle. Um, and I think they did do a very good job here. Yes. Um, but I am a little disappointed because yeah. I wanted the kabukiness a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Luckily, there's going to be more adaptations for us to watch. Amazing. Love it. I will say, I don't think this is horror. Yeah, because, like, with the way the story is structured now and where the emphasis is on the structure now, like, there are some good scares throughout and there's some good horrific elements, but what this is now is it's less Yatsia Kaiden and more a mix of Othello and Crime and Punishment. Othello, yeah, I... Nasuke is definitely Iago. Yeah, and and Yemen is Othello, and Oiwa is Desdemona. Like, when you watch the movie, it's very much a tragedy. It's very much the, like... And when I say tragedy, I mean, like, Shakespearean tragedy or Greek tragedy. That feeling when you're watching a story where bad things are going to happen to everyone, and it's because of, like... One shitty person. Right, or, like, their inherent flaws in the character mean that, like, it's inescapable that these things are going to happen, and the way you're, you know, you go into the story knowing things are going to go bad, and as the audience, all you can do is just kind of watch that train pull into the station. Yeah, I would describe this as a domestic drama. Um, I've seen it described as a supernatural drama, but I I hesitate to even say that because of the emphasis on... Um, the ghost being the guilty conscience. I think that Yatsuwa Kaiden still has teeth, but not in the horror tropes or expectations. Yeah. Um, I mean, even with the fact that, like, because we're so focused on Yemen feeling bad mm-hmm. and waffling the whole time, once he starts being quote-unquote haunted, part of it is like, yeah, this is what you get, but then when he dies in the burning house, we get a scene of him and Oiwa in their youth walking along romantically as the cherry blossoms fall um, among them. And it's like, so you're being reacquainted with your lost love. Okay, but aren't you the bad guy? Well, so I think there's a couple ways to, in- to interpret that last scene. Um, I can see why, like, some of those ways would be, like, a little weirdly incongruous. Um, So, Yemen's ending is, like, he's in the burning house, and he sees Oiwa in the flames. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's not a burnt-up Oiwa, but it's also not, like, a young, beautiful Oiwa. It's sort of the Oiwa who was, like, sickly from the miscarriage, who we saw through most of the movie, which one of the ways the movie makes Oiwa and Asode look different is, like, because Oiwa is sickly for most of the movie, she, like, doesn't have makeup on. She doesn't have, like, even, like, her eyebrows painted on. Uh, She's thinner and, like, um, paler. Uh, Also, Oiwa dyes her teeth black, and Asode doesn't. Asode doesn't have dyed black teeth. She has her makeup on. She has her eyebrows on. And she's, like, plumper of face. Basically, Asode is more, like, conventionally beautiful by 1940s modern Japanese standards, which makes Oiwa, by comparison, look a little weird. Yeah. But that's the... So anyway, so that's the Oiwa that he sees in the house with him. And, like, that's the closest that Oiwa's ghost gets to feeling like a real ghost and not, like, a hallucination. Yeah. Um, But then, yeah, we fade to this scene of them 
walking in the cherry blossoms and looking younger. And I think some people probably would watch that and interpret that as like, ah, they're together again in heaven. I don't think that's what's going on because we see the same scene, the same footage early in part one when Yemen is like sort of bitterly remembering happier times. So this is a flashback to when they were happy together that we're seeing as like he's dying, having killed her and done all these terrible things. So it's meant, I think to be like a bittersweet, like reminder of why this is tragic. Like look how far he has fallen. I don't think it's meant to be a like, Oh, everything. He actually was a good guy or whatever. Yeah. I don't think it was going for, he was actually a good guy, but in any case, it's tragic. Yeah. And what's, sort of, you know, talking, coming back to the point of, like, does this still have teeth? The weird thing that happens here is that by changing the story from horror to tragedy, you know, when you think about a Shakespearean tragedy or a Greek tragedy and how those usually end, the really shocking thing here compared to the play is how many more people are alive. Yes. Like, (laughs) like compared to the play, this is, like, a happy ending for Yatsia Kaiden. Oh, absolutely. Like, Asode's alive, and she's going to have a kid. Uh, she's now got, like, an old grandma buddy who's going to help her take care of the kid. Yamashichi's alive, and they're all going to be fine. The uh, Ichimanji uh, family is destitute and has lost everything, but they're all still alive. Yes. You know, the only people who are dead... Like, even Takayetsu doesn't die. Like, he just gets attacked and then left for dead, but he's fine. Like, the <laughs> only people who die are... Oiwa and Kohei, because they need to die for there to be a story. And then Yemen and Nasuke, because, like, Yemen killed some people and was a bad dude, and Nasuke is the villain. Yeah. And, like, that's it. Like, it's it's a happy ending to a tragedy. <laughs> because, you know, at least compared to the original story. Oh, I guess all those guys who tried to do the jailbreak got beheaded, but, uh, yeah, that, but that happened that, off screen, so it didn't actually happen. Well, and, yeah, and they're not really, like, characters. Like... <laughs> But if we're talking body count, Sure. But, you know, even though I think this isn't a horror story anymore, I do want to make it clear that I think this is a great film. It has really fantastic moving camera cinematography. Like, the way the camera moves tell the story in this movie is really great. There is so many shadows in this movie that the darkness is almost too much sometimes. (laughs) Like, there are a few points in this movie where I was like, I can't see what's going on. Yeah, um, they did do some split screening with um, the because the same actress was playing Asode and mm-hmm. Oiwa. Um, that was very well done. Yeah, they have a scene where they're talking together, and it's done really well. And the actress is clearly doing a really good job as well, making them both full, real characters, not just like, I'm the sexy one, and I'm the sad one. Yeah, exactly. They They feel like different people. There are great sets here. Yes. Great costuming. Um, There's also a really great use of extras doing stuff in the background, which creates this very, like, immersive world that feels like it's alive beyond just the people in the cast, which really helps because this version of the story is so contrived so that everyone in the cast is connected to everyone else. Like, Kohei used to love Oiwa, and he's in jail because of her, and then in jail he meets Nausuke, who's in jail because he robbed the storehouse that Yemen was guarding, and Yemen's now married to Oiwa, and now that they're out of jail, 
Nasuke is Yemen's neighbor. Like, everyone happens to just only interact with other characters in this cast. And so that can create the feel of a really small world. So I, it's really interesting that, like, the, the, the mise-en-scene always has extras going around in the background about their daily lives that aren't related to the plot to make it feel like the world, you know, exists. And I guess it's just from, like, how many fucking Hollywood B-movies we've been watching lately where, like, there are no extras because we can barely afford to pay these actors, right? Yeah. It does make you wonder, though, what it's like being in this village as, like, one of those extras, and you're like, man, Yemen's at it again. Or, like, you know, just from, like, one month to the next, it's like, huh, did the population around here just drop by, like, a... Wasn't there a house over there? Um, Oh, boy. The performances are great. You already pointed out uh, Kanuyo Tanaka's performance. The other people who I think are really good here are Haruko Sugimara as Amaki. Yeah, she was really good. And Osamu Takazawa as Nausuke. Yeah, I do think Nausuke was good. He he is a little one-note because he's the bad guy, mm-hmm. but you can tell he, he is having some fun with it. You can tell that his role is the role that's fun to play, um, which is the exact same thing as Iago. You know, the actor who's playing Yemen, he's doing well. With, like, the guilt thing and the I'm an asshole thing and, and all this kind of, like, tortured stuff. But he really feels like he's playing second fiddle, like, in his own story to, like, Nausuke and Oiwa and Asode, like, these other characters. The one thing I did really like about Yemen here um, is as a depiction of a ronin who really is actually suffering and resentful of his low status. Yeah. Like, you're told over and over again, like, Ronin are masterless samurai. Like, if you watch enough samurai movies like that, you know that. That's a thing that comes up over and over. And, like, the idea that, like, you know, Ronin have no honor, because if you have no master, you should have killed yourself, and, like, this kind of thing. So they're, like, super low status. But most of the time, being a Ronin in, like, movies or comics or whatever is just a way to have, like, a hero who's, like, a wandering, angsty badass. Like, it's a reason for, like, oh, he doesn't stay in any one place, so he can go from village to village getting adventures, and he's angsty because, like, oh, he (laughs) he fell from grace, and he's also a great swordsman and badass in fights because he's actually, like, a trained samurai. Like, it's, it's, Ronan becomes, like, a, um, just, like, a a character archetype, like, the western anti-hero. Yeah, right? absolutely. The thing that this movie does that's really smart is this movie shows us what like a lack of status in a society that's all about status does to a guy who was like clearly decent at some point. Like in a way, I think there's a lot of like class commentary in this movie because of the fact that like none of this would have really eaten away at Yemen as much. Like, yeah, the poverty is part of it, but like Oiwa was making money selling umbrellas. Like, they still have a nice fucking house. Yeah. It's mostly like that for him, it's humiliating to be unemployed, to be a ronin, to have no master, and to be, like, living off, like, money that his wife is making. Like, the things that drive Yemen to be shitty are because of the society that he lives in. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The last little thing I want to talk about before we get into ranking, because I know you're itching to get into ranking, is I'm really curious to get any kind of information about, like, 
what audience reaction to this was. Yeah, because I feel like it could go either way. Like, mm-hmm. without having seen the previous adaptations, if you were just like, yeah, this great spectacle of a play, I'm going to do it, but it's realistic. Mm-hmm. I feel like people would be like, what the fuck did I just pay to watch? Well, yeah, and and it's like, the thing to understand about Yatsuya Kaiden is, like, it's very comparable to, like, what Shakespeare is like in Western society. It's a play that gets performed all the fucking time. Yeah. That is, like, well-known in the culture. I just think that clearly there must have been something going on with the adaptations up to this point because of the push for realism that we see in the 20s, like starting in the 20s, mm-hmm. and the push for, it seems like a division between kabuki mm-hmm. as, like, theater and film. Right, as being this, like, different genre that, like, has different conventions. And the other thing is, like, if you see a lot of other Japanese film from this period, and I mean, this is even true of, like, just film in general in this period. Uh, you know, you look at it, Italy, it's the same story. This idea of, like, trying to capture, like, gritty realism in the post-World War II era is, like, very internationally popular. You have stories that are about, like, everyday average people in, like, shitty, you know, uh, tough cities and stuff. You have... you have Film noir. Yeah, you have film noir in the States. You have neorealism in Italy with, like, bicycle thieves and stuff like that. You know, you have... Kurosawa making movies like uh, The Quiet Duel, which is all about, like, a doctor struggling with syphilis. Like, so in that context, it's hard to say whether this movie was like, oh, you know, this is of the times and this is what the people would have wanted because this is appropriate to, like, what the culture was like. And, like, an adaptation of a very classic Japanese story into this new era, into this new occupation era. Right. And, like, you know, is it something that people would have responded well to in the same way that, like, you know, people have responded really well to uh, the current adaptation of Emma that just came out, because, like, even though there's been a million adaptations of Emma, this is one that, like, really speaks to, like, 2010's, you know, aesthetic and values, right? Would it have been well-received? Or, because Yatsia Kaiden is so classic, and because it's performed so often, and because it has all these traditions associated with the performance and all these really well-known scenes and moments, would the reaction have been like, well, what the fuck? They didn't do the whatever scene. Like, this wasn't in it. They didn't do this part. They didn't do... What the fuck is this crap? You know? (laughs) Yeah. And the thing that I really wonder about, too, is there's a lot of parts of this movie where it coyly references famous moments from the play. It does. But doesn't do them. Like... Like the hair. Right. Like the hair is almost like the closest thing it does do because her hair does fall out. It's just like a more subdued version. And even if you know the play, it's like it's like teasing you with something and not showing it to you, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know what the reception would have been like. Um, it, could have, it could go either way. Mm-hmm. But I do think that this was a very good movie. I do think people should try to see it if they can. Um, I just, uh, if you want to move into ranking... I don't think it's horror. Yeah, I think this is really good. I think people should go see it. I think, you know, get a subscription to the Criterion channel. I mean, honestly. Just do it anyways. Just do it anyways. Um, If you can. If you can, obviously. Uh, You know, get a free month trial, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But, like, 
because that's the only place you can see this. Um, it, it hasn't gotten a physical release from Criterion. It's nowhere else. Like, that's where it is. But I think it's good. But I totally agree with you. I don't think this goes on the list. Yeah. I do think it's good that we watched it because we are going to be seeing so many more adaptations of this down the line. Yeah. It, it Like you, you said earlier, it is unfortunate that our point of reference is going to be this non-horror version. But... I do like that we at least have a point of reference. Yeah, and we've sort of, you know, done a lot of the uh, legwork context setting it up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Entering in the miscellaneous, non-applicable section of the list is Yatsia Kaiden, Parts 1 and 2, from 1949, directed by Keisuke Kinoshita. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest us placing Yatsuwa Kaiden 1949 on the miscellaneous, not applicable list, you can reach us through our ask box on Tumblr, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and uh, anywhere else you want to listen to us through uh, by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, leave us a rating or a review uh, if your podcast service of choice lets you do that, Um, especially on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. um, Ratings and reviews help the show by telling the algorithm that it should show the show to more people and, like, recommend it. Um, If you can't leave a rating or review, um, it helps us out to just tell people about us. I feel like you're going to be seeing a lot of people saying, like, hey, does anyone have some good podcast recommendations while everyone's trapped at home? So, you know, just remember us for when that comes up in conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Share the show on social media. Or, um, if you're able to, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Become a patron of the night. You can join up for as little as a dollar a month, uh, but at the $5 and $10 levels, you get access to bonus content for patrons. And if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we're going to be doing extra episodes on, like, horror-adjacent movies, which this kind of fits into that uh, idea. Um, but also, like, stuff like the 1948 film Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Clue! Right. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. And another thank you and shout out to Shanna Carter, our newest patron of the night. What are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, um, Yatsia Kaiden is our final film of the 1940s. Okay. However, before we say goodbye to this decade altogether... Um, because there's actually another, like, interregnum where there's no horror movies. Um, we're actually going to be looping back in time to 1943. And we're going to be watching Le Lou de Malveneur, or The Wolf of the Malveneurs, from France, from 1943, which, that's still occupied France. Yeah, that's a very interesting um, time. This was recommended to us by an anonymous listener last May. But back then, um, I couldn't find any versions of this movie with English subtitles. I don't think it's ever gotten, like, an official 
English home video release, but I have finally tracked down a good quality copy with English subtitles. So we're going to be looping around for that as our final movie of the 1940s before heading all the way to 1951 for the week after. Wow. Heading to the City of Lights. Paris. <laughs> I don't know if it's set in Paris, but we'll see. France. Hey. <laughs> we'll see you next week, creatures of the night. Au revoir. Bye.